Really guiding us and shepherding us with the joys of the Lord's table and the blood of Christ in song. So we appreciate that. You men certainly ministered to me and that's a blessing and, and certainly a help before we come to God's word. Um, quick plug for this evening, brothers and sisters, we're restarting Cornerstone again. And uh, at 4 o'clock, we'll have the opportunity to gather via Zoom. And there's a link that you should be able to get access to. And um, I think every time we get a chance to get together, is a special occasion. But we'll have a chance uh, for Pastor George Lawson from Baltimore and uh, Pastor Carrie Hardy as well are going to be joining us for just a real brief discussion about how Christ redeems the workplace how he redeems our work life, how our careers are mission fields, and the Lord uses it to sanctify us, and he has set apart every place we go. You don't need to be a pastor. Each one of us has a mission field, and it's the place where God has ordained before the foundation of time for a period of time that you will work so that the bright light of the gospel can go out. And so we'll have that time to uh, join with those two men and be encouraged by them. Well, this morning we get a chance to celebrate, in addition to hearing the word of the Lord, the Lord's table. And connected to the Lord's table, hopefully, as we'll see this morning, is also baptism. And and Danny did a fine introduction this morning about those. But um, to bring it close to home, you know, as I think about these things, I think about the Chin household. And one of the gifts that God has graciously given our family, and that helps us each and every day, is our family mealtime. And uh, I know we all struggle with mealtimes. Sometimes we're busy with 20 zillion different things, and, you know, we have to be reluctantly called to the table or asked to wash our hands, or it's a little bit of an effort to put our work away, or we ask for a few more minutes. But in the bigger scheme of things, In the Chin household, family mealtime is a gift and grace from the Lord. And it's because it gives us as a family an opportunity to stop. To stop from the things of this world and to gather together as a family around what matters most. What all those other things are for. And sometimes we can lose sight of that a little bit. And it takes us a little bit of time to wind down and wind away and really step aside and enjoy Christ's gifts of family and food and fellowship. But as we do, we're reminded what matters most is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His Word. And certainly for our family, the testimony of our family, and we try and remind our boys of that on a regular basis, very, very clearly, you know, we get a chance to spend time with you and you hear Julie's testimony and my testimony and the Lord's work in our lives. It's pretty clear that there would be no Chin family if it wasn't for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if it wasn't for His Word coming in and saving the lives of two very, very wretched sinners. That's what has made our family. We would have no family. We would have no nothing. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Him. And mealtimes serve as an opportunity to stop and gather together and maybe pause for a minute and appreciate that. One of the rules that we have, and 
I'm by no means telling you to do this rule. It's just something that helps our families. We explain to our boys that there's no talking until they've finished half of their food. But to some degree, it's so that there's a bit of a division from the things of the day to our mealtime. And we can remember to appreciate what's most important. And I just think to myself, if this is true for the Chin family, how much more true is it for the household of God, which is the church and the disciples of Jesus Christ gathered together? How important it is for us to stop and pause and remember why it is we gathered and what makes this special. And it's not you or I, though we're part of what's special for sure. But it's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it's being part of His family. And brothers and sisters, that is a miracle that is phenomenally wonderful, and it's special. And to help us live this truth out, because certainly... Our good Father in heaven knows we need help. We need help washing our hands. We need help getting to the table. We need help getting there, for sure, all of us each week. And I'm sure many of you felt that way this week. But to help us live this truth out, and that's really the sweet thing about our Father in heaven. The help we need to get to where we need to be, He gives, brothers and sisters. He's not some stern and ugly father who's expecting you to do chin-ups and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen on your own. He gives us the help we need to make it to His table and to help us live this truth out, our Lord and Savior, by both example and instruction. So He went through this Himself. He's given His disciples and His church Two ordinances, and by ordinance we mean a divine decree or command. Two ordinances that he commands his disciples, and when we say command, non-optional, if you're part of the family, you better be at the table, that he commands his disciples to keep by faith until he returns. Okay? And these are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we get our hearts ready for the Lord's table a little bit later. And this is believer's baptism we're talking about. Full immersion, okay? After a confession of faith and evidence in your life of fruit in keeping with repentance, baptism is a sign and celebration of the beginning of a disciple's new life in Christ. Baptism, it's a little bit like your wedding. It's the formal ceremony in the public coming out to show the beginning of a disciple's new life in Christ. And the Lord's Supper is a sign and celebration of our ongoing fellowship or marriage with Christ and also His church. And that's something that we forget. Baptism isn't this individual activity between me and Jesus. In fact, the Great Commission that we cite as our mission statement just shows that there is no baptism without the local church. It was both vertical and horizontal. It's a union with Christ, but because we're united with Christ, we're united with His church. And we become brothers and sisters in Christ and family members. Okay? For eternity. But the Lord's table that we gather is a reminder and a sign, and the idea of a sign is it points to something, okay? It is not the substance, 
The Lord's Supper and baptism, that's not our salvation. By doing that, we're not saved. But it points to, just like when you're driving past that sign and it says Los Angeles, 200 miles. That's not Los Angeles. But it's a sign that points to our fellowship that we're united with Christ, but we're also part of His local church. We're members of His body, the Bride of Christ. And Jesus has given these to us as a church to help us because what they form in many ways is they form a road map for the life of a disciple. They show us the direction that we're supposed to be going. And as we get together, you know from time to time, my boys know when they drive with me, I'll get lost. They'll get car sick because I'm going back and forth trying to find that. And I'm looking for the signs. Well, those signs are there to bring us back on track and to show us. And so you see that baptism is like you're entering the freeway. The Lord's Supper, regular basis repeated, showing you you're on the right track, you're on the right track, you're on the right track. But where's the end destination? We forget there's an end destination. That this is all a preparation. Your discipleship is a preparation for the wedding feast of the Lamb. That one day Jesus is going to return. And he is going to gather together all those who are truly his disciples. And he's going to bring them together for a celebration as a family. That the wedding is being consummated and fulfilled in glory. But as we think about those things, and if you've ever been invited to a wedding, and you've ever been invited to a, a wedding party, okay, you realize that those things that mark that gathering out, they also separate and divide a line. They separate and divide a line as far as who belongs to Christ and who belongs to His church, and who does not belong to Christ, And who does not belong to his church? And Jesus gave those specifically for those reasons. That's really the epistle of 1 John. To encourage us and to remind us about how much he's given and how he's taken care of us. And everything we need we have, as we sang, from the blood of the cross. That he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. But it's also, brothers and sisters, a warning. You get off the freeway, you end up in the side of the road, or you end up in a ditch, and you end up far from where the Lord is taking us. And this morning, what I'd like us to do is to look, and it's going to be a little bit different than what I I promised, we said before Luke, but we're actually going to go a little bit further. We're going to go to the book of Acts. And I want us to go to the, the book of Acts, specifically Acts 2, to hear what God has to say about baptism and the Lord's Supper, specifically their role in the church. Their role in the church. Now, at other times we've gotten together and discussed the details of the bread and the cup and the immersion water and what these things stand for. Our focus today is a really a bigger picture, a much bigger picture, to see where does the Lord's Supper and baptism, where do they fit in in the life of the disciple and the life of the church? And as we come to God's Word and we hear what it has to say about this, just by way of sort of setting the table since we're making a bit of a transition, as you know, Acts 
is really the sequel or the continuation of Luke's gospel. And this summer during book club, we're going to be reading about the history of the church, and we're also going to go through the book of Acts together. So this is a little bit of a warm-up for you for that. But these God-breathed words that were written by Dr. Luke are the sequel and the continuation of Luke's gospel. And in the book of Acts, these God-breathed words describe for us the historic fulfillment and spread of the gospel. How? By a great missions program? By a great children's program? No, it's by the work of the Holy Spirit working through the gospel and working through disciples and ultimately working through the local church, the first New Covenant church starting in Jerusalem. And as we look at Acts chapter 1 and 2, God shows us His creation of the New Covenant church, or ecclesia, or the people of God. And it begins not with the words or acts or program of men. It does not begin with a fundraiser. Or a building fund. Like Genesis, it begins with the words of God. And very specifically, the words and command that the crucified and resurrected Jesus gives to his disciples and his apostles. I don't think it's by accident that Luke crafted it that way. Similarly to the Gospel of John. And he gives this command to his disciples and his apostles just prior to his ascension into heaven to the right hand of the Father. If you have your Bibles, have a look at Acts chapter 1 and go to verse 4. And the command that Jesus gives his disciples is to wait. It's a command that none of us get too excited about. Wait. And it's interesting to see how God works in men and women who are willing to wait for His Spirit to lead and to work. And it's no surprise that after Jesus' command, shortly after, the disciples devote themselves to prayer. Anyways, verse 4, Jesus commands them to wait in Jerusalem for what? For the promise of the Father. Why? If you drop down to verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Hopefully this should be familiar with us because this is a verse we use frequently for our church planting vision. Well, as we drop down to Acts chapter 2, Luke describes the fulfillment of the Father's promise and he describes the fulfillment of Jesus' words. God always keeps His promises in His time and in His way if we are willing to wait for it. And shortly after Jesus' ascension, as the apostles by faith obey Christ's command, and it's interesting how the Lord works, His promises work in and through men who faithfully keep by faith His commands. That means if we're not obeying God's commands, highly unlikely... Okay, But as they obey Christ's commands, as they gather together, as they wait and pray in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost, 
And that's around 50 days after the Passover feast and around 50 days after Jesus was crucified and rose from the grave. So it's not that long after. It's at this time, and you're familiar with this, very suddenly, very dramatically, and very visibly, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven with the sound of a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit fills not only the apostles, but the entire house that they are in. And the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit supernaturally begin to proclaim the mighty works of God. And that's probably a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. They supernaturally begin proclaiming the mighty works of God in different languages. This is something that many of you I'm sure are very familiar with. And it's worth noting that Acts 2 is very clearly a narrative account. It's describing the one-time historic event and fulfillment of the new covenant in the creation of God's new covenant church. So very clearly, this is not a prescription for believers to speak in tongues. Okay? Are any of you apostles here? Neither am I. Okay, and so we can step back with a sigh of relief. And if you don't speak in tongues, that's okay. It doesn't mean you're not saved or beloved by the Lord. One time event, descriptive, not prescriptive. But as we look at this, it is the Holy Spirit who is fulfilling God's word. And it's the Holy Spirit who leads to the birth of the New Covenant Church in Jerusalem. And how does He do this? And how does the Holy Spirit accomplish and fulfill the Word of the Lord? How is the Gospel spread? Well, very clearly in Acts chapter 2, it's through the apostles' preaching and their expository preaching of God's Word. Very specifically, the Apostle Peter providing an exposition of Joel 2, Psalm 1, and Psalm 110. All of which point everyone to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now I say this, and what does this have to do with the Lord's table and baptism? It's because the Lord's table and baptism, whether you knew it or not, is all about Lordship and discipleship. Who's in charge of everything and who you belong to? Whose life you're living? And those are the lines that are set. And this brings us to Acts 2, verses 32 to 47, which is the culmination of the Apostle Peter's exposition of God's Word at Pentecost. Have a look with me and we'll read this together. Acts 2.32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you go from Acts 1 to the end of Acts 2, which we just finished reading, it begins with Jesus' command, and it ends with baptism and the breaking of bread by Jesus' disciples. And the implication, which is pretty clear, is that those who are saved, those who God has called, are the ones who God is adding to the church. So it ties it together with church membership. Why else do you keep numbers? They're connected. And last week, we were reminded by Richard Dawkins and that guy Jeff, that according to the world, what differentiates a life and an organization, what makes something or someone special, is an originality, a creativity, and an authenticity that is created and sustained by tremendous energy and hard work. And that, brothers and sisters, you know, is the mantra of Silicon Valley, and it's the mantra of many ministries and many churches. But, brothers and sisters, what we just read, the testimony of God's Word in Acts, very clearly just as in Genesis, is that what makes a church... And what makes a disciple and what makes a life special are not the clothes we wear, not how we look, not the jobs we have, not even the ministries that we do. It's the work of God's Word and the Holy Spirit. It is the presence of of Christ and His new life in us. It's the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's what separates us from the world and sets us apart as the children of God, as disciples, and as the household of God. And very clearly in Acts 1 and 2, the Lord is showing us this is what is growing the church. It's sinners being saved by the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of God's Word. 
That is God's blueprint for growing the church. A growth, brothers and sisters, that is sustained by the death and resurrection and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why we gather, brothers and sisters. And that is what baptism and the Lord's Supper are there to remind us of and to bring us back to. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, Supper, excuse me, confess who Jesus is and what He has done according to God's Word. Baptism and the Lord's Supper confess who Jesus is and what He has done according to God's Word. Brothers and sisters, this is something we can easily forget, myself included. Julie will tell you, my life can be so busy with ministry and counseling and all the things that are out there. And you get extended and you get dry and you forget what is it, who who Jesus is and what has Christ done. And those are the things, brothers and sisters, that give us hope and joy and remind us what it is all about. And starting in the 3rd century, baptism was typically preceded by a public testimony and confession of a creed. And essentially that creed that those who were being baptized were asked to state before they were immersed in the waters of baptism and brought out. And incidentally, in those centuries, typically you would go in naked and you would come out and be clothed with a white robe. And similarly, the creed that was spoken before taking the Lord's Supper. There's an idea, notion, that as we're doing this, that there is a conviction of faith and a confession to what we do. A creed was spoken, and that creed eventually would become known as what? The Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, not because the Apostles put it together, but because it was a synopsis of the Apostles' teaching and the Apostles' presentation of the Gospel. In essence, when you look at the Apostles' Creed, much of it looks very much like the Apostle Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And that is not by accident. It's the Apostles' confession of faith. It is that point that's brought forth in Ephesians and that Jesus makes that point that really the church is being built on the foundation of Christ our cornerstone and the teaching and foundation of the apostles and the Holy Spirit in their lives. And here in Acts chapter 2 it's the Apostle Peter's exposition of Joel 2, Psalm 1 and Psalm 110 that shows the religious Jews who have all gathered to hear these men speaking in languages from around the world. It's this exposition and it's this confession that's demonstrating this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that they are witnessing. This proclamation of the mighty works of God, likely including the resurrection in all the different languages and tongues from around the world. This is a fulfillment of God's Old Testament promise to bring salvation to the nations. God's Old Testament promise, he will demonstrate he is a God who saves sinners no matter how wretched they are. That he is a God who is able to provide forgiveness for the greatest of sinners. They're showing that this is a fulfillment 
that points to the truth of what they are witnesses, that this same Jesus whom they just crucified 50 days earlier during Passover in Jerusalem is in fact the living and resurrected Christ, the Lamb of God and the Lord of all. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Brothers and sisters, do you know who Jesus is? Well, anybody who walks through a church door typically says yes. But consider carefully what the Apostle Peter is confessing here. And we've got to stop and say, well, do we really believe that? That name Christ is a reference, as all that original religious Jewish audience knew, to God's anointed King and Messiah, the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, the Son of David, the Son of God, the eternal ruler of heaven and earth. And the reference to the name Lord refers to the only one in whose name there is the forgiveness of sins, salvation, and new life. It's one of the reasons why the religious Jews wanted to stone and kill Jesus when he offered the forgiveness of sins. And that name Lord is the one to whom every knee must bow, every tongue must confess, and all worship and servitude of a person's entire life is to be given. And the religious Jews would know that from the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. All your muchness is one of the translations in the Hebrew. It means all your property, all your belongings, everything that you have, it all belongs to Him if you profess Him as Lord. Do you believe it? Do you live it? To honor, to serve, to obey joyfully and completely with the entirety of our lives. Brothers and sisters, that is what it means to pledge allegiance and worship Jesus as Lord. And that, brothers and sisters, is what it means to be a disciple. A disciple by faith of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what both baptism... And the Lord's Supper point to. Baptism as you confess and come forward. And someone from the church takes you and immerses you in water. And brings you out and baptizes you in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's a demonstration. You no longer belong to yourself. You have been killed. You have a new life that God has given you. And that new life in its entirety. Everything about it. It belongs to God. Very specifically, it belongs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper, as you take the cup, a symbol of the blood that was shed for you, and the new covenant. New covenant, that means you're in a marriage contract. And the bread that you take, a representation of Christ's body that is broken for you. It's a proclamation and confession that Jesus is Lord of your life, and the only life that you live by is His, not yours. And what you need to sustain your new life is entirely given by Christ. He's all you need. He's everything. And anything beyond that is not worth living. 
Brothers and sisters, the early church understood that's what they were doing. In foreign countries around the world, many understand that is what they're doing. As we read in our book club, those in Muslim countries know if they're going to be baptized and going to publicly make that confession, they may die. It's a line, brothers and sisters, but it's a line that points us to the greatness of our salvation. It's a line, brothers and sisters, that calls us to remember who Jesus is and what he has done. And as sinners, brothers and sisters, it gives us great hope and joy. Because it shows us that Christ, through his death and resurrection, has given us a completely new life to live. A life that is set apart from the ugliness and sinfulness of this world, which he is able and capable of sustaining. That brings us to our second point for this morning. Baptism and the Lord's Supper confess our deep need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptism and the Lord's Supper confess our desperate and deep need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? We talk about this frequently. It's not about what you or I can do to make this church better, to make a ministry better, to save others, to counsel people, to fix people's lives. We cannot do that. I cannot save anyone. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is the good news of what God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, has done to save sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How? According to His Word. And brothers and sisters, if you're a sinner, that's incredible hope. Because nobody else can save you, and nobody else can fix it, but Jesus can. And it's good news, brothers and sisters, because this is what sinners so desperately need. And we see this in verse 37. And Luke begins to show us how God uses the gospel and the gospel alone through the power of the Holy Spirit to save sinners. It says, now when they heard this, and they are the religious Jews who had gathered, they were cut or they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And here we see the work of the Holy Spirit fulfilling Jesus' words and using the gospel to pierce and cut and convict hard hearts. We've got good reason to believe here that Peter's audience are those the gospel of Mark and John referred to as, quote-unquote, the Jews. Religious Jews who had moved from around the world and were living in Jerusalem so they could be close to the temple The same community who, when Jesus arrived some 60 days earlier in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, reject him, revile him, and vote and participate in his crucifixion. In contrast to the Galileans and all the other Jews who came with them. And these would have been the Jews who would have looked down on the Galileans. And there's an impression of that in the text where they say, Who are these Galileans who are speaking in all these different languages? And there may even be reason to believe that present at the crucifixion and perhaps present or at least in Jerusalem at the time was a young rabbi studying under Gamaliel named Saul. How hard does your heart have to be to see the miracles of Jesus, to hear his preaching and teaching, and ultimately vote and cheer for his crucifixion? 
And I believe Peter makes that point. Acts 2.22. Have a look at verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So they were witnesses. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Brothers and sisters, there's a few greater testimonies of what a hard and prideful and murderous and blind heart looks like. That is hostile to the word and work of God. And yet, brothers and sisters, don't point your fingers at, quote-unquote, the Jews. Because how many of us have persisted in sin or patterns of idolatry after sitting in church week in, week out? It's a testimony, brothers and sisters, of the magnitude of our sin and our ensnarement and the hardness of our heart. But the good news that's demonstrated here is that it is God's work that we need in our lives, not a religious education. Now, I went and grew up in a Christian school. And I was blessed by that time. And I've got nothing against Christian schools, brothers and sisters. And I've got nothing against Sunday school. And I've got nothing against coming to church and hearing and learning about God's word. But without Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to pierce and penetrate and convict your heart of sin and where you stand with the Lord, it is absolutely worthless. And all we do is we manufacture Pharisees. We need God's work in our hearts and our lives. And that's why Jesus talking of the Holy Spirit to His disciples beforehand in John 16.8, He says, And when He, talking about the Holy Spirit, comes, He will do what? Make you feel better about yourselves? Tell you about the great life Jesus has to offer you? Tell you that there's a great church that you should be part of? John 16.8, And when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Brothers and sisters, the gospel, when it comes, it saves us by piercing our hearts and giving us a new heart and softening it and convicting us that we are wretched sinners who stand beneath the judgment of God and we are not entitled to anything. We deserve His wrath and His punishment. We live in a world that clamors for justice. Justice, justice, justice. Boy, if we really wanted true justice, we... And if we got true justice, you'd be running for a hole to crawl into. And that's what these religious Jews began to see. That before the Lord, they stood condemned. Now and for eternity, by the wrath of God, their relationship with the Lord was not right. And this is why they come and they say, Brothers, what shall we do? They realize they are helpless to save themselves. They are idolaters. They are sinners. They are murderers. These men who thought they were the best of people because of their external life and sacrificing everything and moving to Jerusalem to be closest to the temple and all the hoops that you have to jump through and all the religious education now realize they are the worst of men. 
And they now realize that they are unable to save themselves. Brothers and sisters, you know, if we have never gotten to that point in our lives where you realize your sin is so bad you cannot save yourself, I do wonder indeed if you have received the gospel and you know who Jesus is. Because it's not until we step into the light and see Jesus face to face. It's not until we behold His glory through His word and see who He truly is. And when you go through the Gospels and you see the disciples, when they encounter the power of Christ and they behold a glimpse of His glory, and they've been listening to Him and they've been hearing His preaching, but there are those moments that come through where they tremble and they're afraid. Depart from me, we are sinful men. Right? Can we say that Jesus is truly our Lord and Savior? Can we say we are a disciple? If we have not fully seen that we cannot save ourselves, that our sin and our idolatry is wretched, and we so desperately, desperately need God to work in us through the power of the gospel. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Brothers and sisters, when we gather around the table, when we witness baptism, what we're coming face to face with is that God is calling sinners to himself and he has provided you with every means that you need to be saved. Now, this is a text that's frequently abused and misinterpreted. And some people go to this text claiming that this shows that baptism is the basis of your salvation. And on another occasion, we'll deal with this in depth. But very clearly, Peter is not saying here that your salvation or your sanctification is the result of an act of repentance or baptism or even making a decision for Christ. That's not what he's saying. It goes against the context. It goes against the authorial intent. It goes against the gospel. And it also goes against Peter's words in 1 Peter 3.21 where he says, Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, not by your act, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's pointing to the reality that baptism is really a cry for help. It's going to the Lord. It's saying, Lord, I can't save myself. You have to save me. And as you look at both baptism and the Lord's Supper, they center around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they demonstrate that the Lord is going to come and it's going to be His work in our lives. And that idea of being buried is that the Lord must kill you. That your life needs to be united with the death of Christ. And your old life of sin and the old life of the world, that must be done away with a little No, completely. And that you must be raised by God in Christ to a completely new life that belongs to Jesus. 
And that as you gather around the table, this new life is sustained not by the things of this world, your career, your education, the church you go to. It's sustained by the life of Christ. His blood and His body. It's what we sang earlier. All I have is Christ. Everything in this world took me down. I want you to notice this. Brothers and sisters, we cannot kill sin in our lives ourselves. Have you tried it? I have. And I failed miserably. You can't do it. You're not big enough. If we're going to be free to live with Christ, we need the Lord to kill us. And we need the Lord to do so by uniting our lives with Christ and to His death so that we can live anew with Him. And yet, brothers and sisters, that death that the Lord brings, we run from, do we not? There are a number of folks who, they've got new children, new babies. Nothing brings together the reality of what it means to die a million deaths and to have a new baby in the home and have to change diapers and wipe away poo and take care of sick kids in the middle of the night. All those things that you used to live for before. Great meals, great restaurants, great movies, time with your spouse, all of those things, they're gone. You died to that world, right? Brothers and sisters, the life of discipleship is the same. And it's a wonderful life. And the life that the Lord gives us is amazing and beautiful and wonderful. And sometimes we fail to see that the suffering that comes in our lives as we follow Jesus is actually His gift. And the ways in which He brings trouble and difficulties into our lives and breaks our hearts is a gift so that we can be free of the things that have a hold on us so that we can enjoy the great prize of all, the life and the love and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that brings us to our final point for this morning, brothers and sisters. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are a participation and celebration by faith in the life of Christ, in the work of Christ, by His disciples. It's just a long way of saying that what it is, really it's a sign, it's a celebration. We gather together and celebrate that we have a new life to live. And that life is not ours, it's Christ. And God has made that possible. He's set us free. He's brought us to the place of repentance. He's brought us to the place, and that idea of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and baptism, it means... He's destroyed that old life. And He's fed us and equipped us for this new life. And the new life we live, I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but the life I live. I live by faith in Christ, the one who loved me and gave His life for me. Verse 41 shows the outcome of that. It says, so those who received His word, that's faith, those who received His word, saying that this is true, those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here we see the connection between baptism and church membership. 
adding that day about 3,000 souls, they were added to the ranks or groups of the disciples and the apostles, those who were children of God. They were separated out of the world. They were separated out of their old religious community. And now they belong to a new ecclesia. An ecclesia where Jesus Christ is Lord. And the life they live and that they share in common is no longer the old life. It is the life of Christ. Acts 2.42 And they devoted themselves, wholeheartedly given themselves over, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. If we ever advertise that, I wonder how much and how many people would flood to our ranks to say, this is our church plan and program, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that idea of breaking of bread very broadly speaks of communal meals. They would gather together and they would eat together. But part of that communal meal, and at the end of that communal meal, as you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and chapter 10, included very frequently the Lord's Supper. And that term, the breaking of bread, became the term that referred to gathering together for the Lord's Supper. And it's a right response, brothers and sisters, to the hearing and obeying of God's Word. And who was it who participated in this new life? Those who received His Word and were baptized. Those who had repented and were baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Those whom the Lord God had added to the number. Verse 41 and also 7. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And we get this beautiful picture at the end of Acts of an amazing life and community that gathers together. It's not just pie in the sky and the wedding feast, brothers and sisters. That new life of the Holy Spirit that's set free begins here and now. And all of those things that we read, that they shared everything in common, that they sold their possessions, whoever need had, that they ate together, that they gathered together, all of that, brothers and sisters, is the fruit of the new life of Jesus Christ that they shared. That is what bonded them together. It's the work of gospel in their lives, and it's sharing a life that comes from above. Brothers and sisters, baptism in the Lord's Supper really is a challenge for each one of us to ask ourselves, where do we stand in relation to Jesus? Is He our Lord? Are you indeed a disciple? Have you died to that old life? And is the life you live a life that is from above by the power of the Spirit and entirely given over to Him. And it's God's call and His invitation to each one of you that this is the life He desires you to have. The life of a child of God, the life of a disciple, and the life of a member of His household. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, What a life you've given us. And these reminders that you've given us, Lord. Thank you for them. As we prepare our hearts to come to the table. Lord Jesus, would your gospel do its work in our hearts and lives? Would our hope not be in ourselves but you? Would we indeed be able to sing with sincerity what we sang earlier that... 
All we have, Lord Jesus, is you. And would your word and your spirit and your good news be what sets apart this church and this fellowship, Lord Jesus, from the world? And would it be set apart for you so that one day, Lord Jesus, we would celebrate and eat together at the wedding feast of the Lamb. In your name we pray, amen.